0: Good morning, listeners and viewers, and welcome to my podcast, Slaves to the Algo. My name is Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data, and I'm delighted to have today with me Ian Miles from Area 51. That's a story, and Ian will explain that to you. But Ian is a wonderful person to have on it because he actually is an industrial designer. He calls himself a creative generalist. I see him as a very eclectic person who started off very much like me as a right-brained person who's now very much into how he uses the left brain and technology, and therefore an extremely fascinating person to have with us here today to talk about how algorithms are taking over our lives. Welcome to the show, Ian. Good. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the invite. And Ian, how would you describe yourself? I mean, like I did my introduction, but what would you say about yourself when you meet people? And tell us about Area 51 and the name.
1: Uh, uh, Area 51 was started when I turned 51 and uh, my wife has always thought of me as a bit of an alien. Anyway, um, when I lived in the US, my immigration card, my green card status said resident alien. That, that's their term for foreigner. And I thought that's actually nicer. You call someone a foreigner, it's look slightly negative. If you call someone alien, you know, that's been just a bit more interesting. And I've always loved the science fiction aspect of extraterrestrial life. So it seemed as good an idea as any. Um, I, you know, Industrial design was called the uh, the trade to, to be the jack of all trades, master of none. And that is certainly what's required if you're trying to figure out how to bring hardware into production. And of course, over the last 30 years, as we've all grown digitally, you have to learn more and more skills. And for me, um, I'm just naturally curious. I've got a very energetic mind. It never rests. Uh, some people think I've got attention deficit disorder, and I tell them that's how I make a living. Um, it's just because I like to be involved in lots of different things. I like to know how things work. And I like to put things together and try and make new things happen. And so the the long career path has allowed me to try my hand at lots of different things, which keeps me uh, eternally um, moving forward. So it's, uh, I just try and solve problems and for people, whatever they are.
0: That's very interesting when you talk about attention deficit disorder, because in some ways, the algorithms that are running our digital lives in ways that we don't know it today... Mm-hmm. are um, completely changing the quality of our attention and the type of attention that we have. Yeah. So I'm going to start by asking a very interesting question for me personally. Um, could you tell me some algos that are taking over our lives as just as people or as consumers that we don't even know about, the best illustrations of things that our algos are insidiously creeping their way into everything that we're doing?
1: Uh, yeah, um, well, large smallest. small. It's, we don't need to spend time on the big obvious ones that are newsworthy in uh, media. But, you know, I have spent plenty of time looking at Cambridge Analytica, looking at social media, understanding their, their heavy and aggressive uh, use of algos. Um, but uh, I'm not a gamer, but I occasionally indulge myself in uh, a new challenge. I learned how to play backgammon a couple of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And it's my favorite thing to do when I'm just trying to relax a little bit. And I've realized even this backgammon game has got a pretty serious uh, machine learning component to it. And I thought I was getting pretty good at the basic level, so I upped it a few more notches. And then it's a very kind of linear, logical. It's in the same class of games as you know, chess and checkers and go. And of course, we 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 should all be familiar with the story of Go, you know, pushing the envelope on general AI. But I've even found on, uh, in small ways, uh, even games like uh, Backgammon, uh, this machine is using my <laughs> techniques against me. Um, so it's kind of it's learned me, in a way, and it's learning uh, my the tactics against me. I mean, that's a really small, simple, kind of obvious one. Uh, the, the selection algorithms that do predictive stuff in, uh, in, in Netflix and YouTube, where I do spend too much time, um, I'm finding they're just a little too efficient. I'm missing the randomness of discovery, uh, which was really quite nice about the early days of Google. Um, You know, uh, PageRank's the most famous algorithm in the world, right? And uh, there was this accidental stumbling upon, uh, which is akin to being in a library, where you're looking for something, and then you find something, oh, that's interesting, to the left or the right, or what I would call the adjacencies. And sometimes the adjacencies are more interesting than your primary objective. And so I, I do like a little bit of randomness in life. And so I'm disappointed when there's uh, when the algos are getting too efficient. And they're actually uh, becoming repetitive in a way um, through that type of efficiency. So that's interesting. It's
0: it's it's interesting you talk about the randomness of discovery, and because uh, I remember many years ago, uh, Eric Schmidt talked about how they are trying to build a serendipity engine. I mean, serendipity is all about the randomness of discovery. Yeah, and that's completely. uh, Now it seems that business models, whether you're in social media or in Google, have taken over, and that is repeated. Just go and say who's the guy and what do I target and do that, rather than ensuring the serendipity of discovery. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's obviously not a technology problem. It's more a business model problem. Would you say that?
1: Yeah, I would say that because I think um, it, it, you've got to question whose interests they are serving. And, uh, and I, I, I quote Steve Jobs frequently. He says, you've got to start with the customer experience and work back towards the technology, not the other way around. And I just spend so much time in technology. Uh, Technologists think they're driving the world. I think, well, really, um, it's your customers that are making an economic event happen. So you need to be looking after them, not just trying to advance how clever your technology is. Uh, So that that type of efficiency, I think, can cost you users. We're definitely living in an attention deficit age. I think uh, screens and internet has driven that. Um, we must have uh, far shorter attention spans. Uh, we, there's, a, there's an immediacy we expect from being super connected, and we grumble when an internet speed is too slow. Um, but I do think this year, like no other year, has taught us to kind of slow down a little bit, maybe go a little bit deeper, instead of covering you know many many topics in as much time as possible. You know the efficiency of uh, working inside big corporations. I think some things you just need to go a little bit deeper on in order to have a more meaningful effect um, in the design. So I think you know, this year is a very interesting year to reflect on everything. Uh, it's a particularly interesting year to reflect on, some, uh, I think, some of the aggressive efficiencies that machine learning is being used for. Um, before uh, um, we get to that ian and that's yeah. going
0: to be a topic i want to really get into it's uh, yeah. another interesting thing for me is that you're seeing how algos are taking over the way we are working
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you consult with people on this stuff and you've been a banker you've been in the telecom industry <laughs> uh, you've been in a variety of different industries right so can you tell me how work itself is changing and how people inside companies are becoming more and more res uh, more and more reliant on algorithms uh, and how that's changing the way decisions are being made inside companies.
1: Yeah, well, my lens uh, into algos um, and AI generally is through the educational space, and uh, and we've seen a tremendous bloom in the last three, four years. The best explanation to me is that we're generating so much data, there's not enough humans to process it, so that's what's driven AI, to process the data. Um, and so a client of mine who supported me at a conference here in singapore 2017 we did a one-day event as part of the fintech festival called identity and ai and identity is my big uh, passion i think it's a it's a huge problem we've tried to raise capital around this before and we decided just to do a conference we added ai into the mix to make it interesting well the client did a workshop and that day after his workshop he decided to pivot his entire business as an educational technologist away from STEM and just do AI, AI for absolute beginners. And because what he would observed is that there's this massive uh, shortfall in the understanding of what AI is, what machine learning does. Um, you know, Do we go back to high school math to revisit uh, uh, the, the algorithms that we, uh, most of us probably haven't looked at algorithms since we were at high school, unless you journey up through the computer science realm. Um, but there was a strong felt need to reset, rethink, demystify, uh, debunk the fears. Um, so we've been looking at it through the lens of education more than anything else. So I'm not a coder. Um, my math is patchy, I'd give myself a C plus, I kind of hit my ceiling, uh, second year at college when we're doing mechanical calculations. And uh, but I have been revisiting math, I've been rediscovering it, and I have been doing a little bit of coding, but really just to understand the fundamentals as to how you apply it in society. One of the great learnings that we're getting that cascades down uh, from the National Health Service in the UK, and they're mandating that AI is explainable. Transparency in publishing is not enough, because most of us don't understand it. Even if we were to give an average person in the street a sheet of Mozart's scratchings, we wouldn't understand any of it. Um, So there's a very small percentage of people actually understand the math behind the coding and the statistics and the predictive analytics to give you um, a percentage of an outcome that you might be looking for. Um, But you can still explain it to people. You don't have to have that uh, PhD level uh, capacity to write that level of uh, math and so the national health service uh, which is a huge influencer is mandating explainable ai so if ai is going to act on you in any way shape or form you must be made aware of that and you must have it explained to you at a level that you can understand it and i think well, that's, that's fascinating
0: that's, if i could go a little bit deeper and sure. ask you a question you know i mean yeah. i mean medicine is something that we don't often talk about but um, Happy to. often yeah. In the old days, we just trusted the doctor. Now we ask the doctor questions, the doctor tells you something. Then you moved from there to Googling mm. for everything. So, yeah. when the NHS, which is probably the world's, you know, in some ways, the world's one of the biggest benchmark yeah. of giving public health care, says explainable AI, what do they mean? I mean, are they saying that doctors are going to get the benefit of AI to explain the patient? What exactly do they mean by well, explainable it's,
1: AI? It's called XAI. And uh, I think it's a little bit more than, it wasn't that long ago, it was maybe the 70s, it was legislated that every package had to have the ingredients on it. Now, how many people are looking at the ingredients? A few of us, you Nice know, analogy. make choices, but that had to be legislated into being. You know, the manufacturers didn't want to give up their recipes. They didn't, whether it's like shampoo or, you know, carbonara sauce, you know, they didn't want to reveal um, but it was legislated. You will explain to the public what's inside that, and then it's up to you to get educated on what is salt doing to my body. What is oh so much sugar? Oh my goodness! Um, but it but at least uh, putting it there that you know that's transparency. That's one thing. Um, then beyond that, explainable AI really requires someone, a, a good teacher who's able to understand how to take something complex. And without muddying it in metaphor, uh, explain it so that your average person can say, OK, I now know how the telco is using my data. OK, I now know how the bank is um, uh, predicting my uh, monthly average uh, based on uh, income and outgoings. And once people have got the fundamentals, they're far more comfortable with it. Or if they've got an issue, then they'll go a little bit further into that. So. In a hospital, if you're about to get a procedure and there's a certain amount of risk around that procedure, you'll get counsel from the physicians who will say, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to do it. You don't have to understand the inner workings of your heart or your lung or or whatever uh, operation you're undergoing, um, but they do go through that. It's an ethical practice to explain to you, uh, we're doing this, Um, we'd like you to sign off on this so you fully understand um, and you're comfortable with what we're doing. And if you're not, then we'll try another path. But as professionals, we believe you should do this.
0: So and again, I'm just going to go one level deeper into that question. So where does the AI come in? So the doctor's in you, he's about to operate on you, he's going to do a procedure. Hmm. So what happens? I mean, is that the AI is popping up and saying, hey, you got to tell these things, here are the 10 things Or give machine, a sheet of paper to the patient. Uh, a, so a, is it a human plus machine kind of a thing when we talk about explainable I, I, AI?
1: I, I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, Human Plus. Uh, really, um, the, the hospitals in the US that they're doing predictive analytics. When uh, people are entered into the emergency trauma, uh, they will quickly uh, gather metrics, uh, try and find whatever medical records might be available about you, and it'll predict if you're going to be alive or dead in 30 days. Now, that's kind of scary information, uh, uh, but the hospital then uses uh, Augment to the best of the doctors appreciate that type of, because they've been harvesting this information for years. And at this at 96% accuracy today. It's just going to get better with more wow. data. And so the doctors are saying, wow, it's worse than I thought. We better think about it differently. Or, oh, it's not as bad as I thought. Or they maybe want to check it again. But having that supplemental um, vast amount of information that you can draw upon it's got to improve medicine, um, and I think every doctor, whatever ego is involved, would happily take a second opinion from an AI rather than a competitor in the, in the same realm. So I think that uh, you know, and the AI is going to consume more than a single human can consume in their lifetime. And
0: but you're kind of bringing it. I mean, there's the doctor, and there's the patient, and there's the machine or the AI in between. But I'm also thinking about it as a patient, right? When I wanted to sign up for the 23andMe service. Yeah, I ask myself, do I really want to know whether I'm going to get the disease? Or am I happily, blissfully, <laughs> yeah, when I get it's, it, I'll, I'll handle it. Uh,
1: no, it's, uh, you know, it, that, that is a great example. And uh, there's lots of funny anecdotes around that for the beer, you've promised me. But it's, uh, it, yeah, I mean, those those are choices. Some people just like, I don't want to know, just do what you need to do. And other people, I think most of us recently said, explain it to me one more time, or just help me understand what's going on. Um, and then, of course, there'll be this super curious mind. So, want to really just keep going and say, well, how do you know this? Where did you get that information? You know, what data set has been fed in to tell you that 3,000 people who have got the same condition as me had this spectrum of outcomes? Um,
0: no, and, 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 and that, is, that is really so interesting because um, I'm going back to that fascinating example used of the ingredients in the bottle. Yeah. Some of us obsess with looking at the ingredients yes. before we buy food. Yes. Other people completely ignore it. Yes. But it is there and it's a choice that you make. Uh, so yeah. do you see that kind of a world where let's say every time an ad pops up, we made this thing based on five things that, or you know, every time a bank makes a recommendation, telco selling is something that literally that ingredient pack appears next to it. Um, we have some rudimentary versions. You know, someone will say, you know, did this because you like something. I'll show
1: you this. Yeah, but it's, it's usually if there's a negative outcome. So if you've been rejected from a bank, um, you didn't get the loan you applied for. You want to know why? So I, why why is he getting it, not me? Um, and for sure, there's lots of there's been lots of discriminatory practices that go on within Absolutely. banks. Um, you know, part of my life inside of a bank was revealing. Uh, truth and fairness and lending, which is a legal position that the US government takes, uh, the government will come down on a bike like the hand of God if they are discriminating along gender lines, uh, racial lines, uh, people with disability. Uh, they will make calculated decisions as a business around earnings. It's like, well, this individual doesn't make enough to pay back a million dollar loan, so we're not going to lend him a million. But you need to understand why you're being denied something uh, for whatever that institution's uh, position is and I think if you' uh, if, it, if it's a if it's a piece of negative news you most people will interrogate that because it will not be a satisfactory answer and whether that's a health thing or a commercial thing or um, it, it needs to be explainable and that's why I think uh, spending a bit of time uh, in around ethics and AI how companies need to have good baseline understanding of how AI is being used, so that they can explain it to their customers. And and just to loop back around to medicine again, you know, if if you or I were to fill out a card that says I will donate my uh, organs uh, to charity in the event of my passing, that's like a goodwill gesture to help another human. You might have great kidneys, great lungs, great heart, great something. So that that only happens when you pass. Um, You wouldn't do that so easily when you're alive. It's like, wait, I've only got one and I'm still using it. Um, But when it comes to data, it's transferable. And I think what Google's been doing is uh, quite good and quite clever, is that they say, we'll use your data in an anonymized and aggregated way so that we can have more sophisticated models for society. The people who live in this village eat mostly vegetables. The people who live in this village eat mostly meat. Why is there more cancer in one than another? That type of um, large-scale medical modeling at a societal level. So for individuals to give up their data, it's like, well, I haven't lost anything except a bit of privacy Um, as long as it's not used uh, against me in an exploitative manner by an insurance company who may be looking for reasons to raise my premium or deny me uh, insurance, so I think there's uh, there's there's benefits when it's well positioned, well presented, and well delivered. But uh, there's and clearly a lot of privacy. There's a whole aspect
0: here stuff. of. Sorry to interrupt you there, but I no think again I'm just so fascinated by some of the things you're saying. There's a whole aspect here of privacy, but I'm going to come back to this idea that you talked mm-hmm. about in banking and lending and yes. how it works. Uh, you know, I think in mathematics, basically, you know, you can set a function for what you call precision or recall, right? Meaning, I want to go very narrow and I want to make sure that yes. I'm absolutely right, or sure. I set it for recall, saying I want to show you a lot of discovery. You know, we talked about discovery and the randomness yes. of discovery in the yep. beginning, and you can't do both. I mean, an algorithm can do one or the other, and yeah, yeah. normally, most machine learning people are trying to say where's that fine balance when I'm yeah. you know, kind of um, yeah. maximizing as much as I can on both sides. Hmm. But it strikes me, uh, Ian, that most businesses in the world today, whether you're a social media company, whether you're a search giant, whether you're an advertising company, are interested in the precision, in the repetitiveness saying, if you did this, I'm going to show you this again and again because I want to sell you something. And that leads to an unknown bias because the data can obviously turn around and say, these are the exact people who did it. Go and show them that and you, you know, you get a yeah. bias which is built into the AI, and we're not thinking enough about the discovery I could, part of it. it could and, be a large, and,
1: yeah, I agree with you. It's very interesting. I mean, it could be a large-scale confirmation bias. Uh, you know, confirm for me what I'm expecting to see. That's, you know, like a scientist who uh, I found the thing I was looking for. How amazing is that? Um, I actually find I'm much more interested in the anomalies or the outliers. Uh, and if you're uh, if you're in mechanical engineering, you want to know why things are failing. I need to understand the edge cases. Like, that failed. Why? I need to know. When came off that plane, we need to really get into you know, one plane in 100. The wing fell off. We need to understand the anomalies. So, you know, but you can, you can set the math to flag the anomalies if the anomalies are more interesting um, than the, the, the middle of the curve, the middle of the bell curve. It's, uh, but also, living in a place like Singapore, uh, and I, I share this with great affection, um, having built a few things before, you need to build for the majority um, so that your machine can process, your your machine-driven process is as efficient as possible. And in Singapore, if, you, if you're if you a perfect little cube, uh, you fly through that system at, at incredible speed. And, and the world applauses uh, some of that efficiency. But if you're an edge case, you're an outlier, I am a little cube with the corner knocked off it. Um, you know, it's like, oh, machine can't process and you need to be pushed out to the side and be treated a little bit differently um, by customer service or whoever's trying to help you get your thing done. And so that's why- The fascinating
0: thing about what you just said, it is not in the machine. It is in the way the human being is setting the machine to process the the majority
1: and not the edge. It's in the parameters. It's in the parameters. So one of the things that uh, I've been wanting to do for a while and finally got around to doing this year was I've become a student. Uh, of AI uh, with the view to teaching. And so this year, we developed a course for Monash University in Melbourne called Design and AI. And it's, it's it was fun. It was really successful. They're wanting us back next year. We're trying to replicate it. But from a design point of view, uh, what that community of people latch onto and are interested in uh, is quite different from what I call the harder core technical people Who whose time I spent, who I spent a lot of time with them as well. But the designers were really interested in the human uh, aspect. And a place we zoomed into was cognitive bias. And cognitive bias is huge right now because one, it's foundational for beginning your AI journey, but it's really come to the mainstream in society as a whole uh, in uh, movements like Black Lives Matter or how discriminatory uh, society is in many, many ways. Uh, and so I find it very, very interesting. I cited a bunch of examples. You'll know them; they're out there. About uh, rudimentary machine learning platforms were discriminating when it comes in the hiring process. Now, I'll give you a good example. I'll give you a bad example. Uh, Amazon in Scotland. Uh, a bunch of engineers built a, an algorithm to filter resumes, and the data set mm-hmm. they fed it was predominantly male. Because guess what? In engineering, it's a predominantly male landscape. So the machine just filtered out all the women, like women, eh, women, eh. and of course, you you don't want to rile Scottish women. That certainly did. They had to shut it down really. (laughs) (laughs) They They had to shut it down real fast. And they looked at it and they said, well, there was too much cognitive bias in the coding that was going on by males for males. Uh, And and I say that because i got a daughter who's raised in Silicon Valley and she's hypersensitive to these gender biased environments and and their points of view.
0: This is such a fascinating conversation we're having with Ian Miles of Area 51. We're going to be continuing the conversation in the next episode. So stay with us and we'll be back soon. Thank you very much for listening. We have new episodes coming out every week, sometimes twice a week. Each will seek to bring a different and fresh perspective to the topic. Please subscribe to the podcast channel and share it widely in your network. I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Meanwhile, stay safe personally in the age of COVID and stay relevant professionally in the age of
1: AI.